bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. One of the top stories I'm following here this month is uh, an outbreak of the H5N1 avian bird flu uh, that's been documented actually all across Canada uh, and into the United States as well. Uh, British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, Newfoundland um, and Nova Scotia have all reported um, outbreaks of the um, avian bird flu. Uh, It's also just been confirmed in Manitoba, uh, confirmed in wild birds, uh, waterfowl and birds of prey Uh, are the most susceptible uh, wild avian species. So in Manitoba, um, they found the avian bird flu, which is lethal um, to the birds uh, for the most part, uh, in some snow geese and in a bald eagle um, that was sick and picked up and they've uh, all tested positive. Uh, In British Columbia, uh, snow geese, Canada geese, and some bald eagles uh, from various locations across the province have been Uh, found and tested positive for the bird flu. Uh, There are a number of um, poultry facilities uh, in British Columbia where I live and other places in Canada that uh, had outbreaks of uh, the bird flu and that's I guess where the big concern is is the outbreak in the domestic poultry uh, waterfowl operations uh, then somehow Uh, leaking out into uh, the wild uh, bird populations. It's particularly um, stressful or risky at this time of the year because all the waterfowl are migrating back to the Arctic. So the, um, you know, and back to their nesting grounds uh, across Canada. So, so their ability to pick it up sort of from a, uh, from a domesticated or agricultural setting and then move that uh, uh, farther north in the country is, uh, you know, and affecting more of the population is is a pretty big concern. Down in the U.S., um, since February of this year, they've called about 37 million chickens and domestic turkeys. Um, And the U.S. Department of Agriculture has confirmed almost a thousand cases of the bird flu in wild birds, uh, including at least 54 eagles. And that's just the numbers that have been uh, people have found uh, sick or dead wild birds and picked them up and they've been able to test and confirm them. So the avian bird flu, the last big outbreak was back in uh, 2015. And so far officials, at least out of the United States, are indicating that it's far more widespread uh, in wild birds uh, in the U.S. than uh, than it was seven years ago. So uh, apparently there's there isn't a high risk of people contracting the bird flu if you came in contact from uh, from a sick sick bird but uh, um, obviously that's a concern just the same as the covid story in deer which I'll touch on again a bit more in a, in, in a minute here so uh, as this develops over the course of the spring and early summer I'll definitely keep you up to date on what's happening with the uh, the avian bird flu but you know for now the biggest concern seem to be the potential um, for sort of epidemic level impacts to wild bird populations um, eagles and 
waterfowl. So in New Brunswick, speaking of COVID and deer, so New Brunswick uh, confirmed its first case of uh, deer that that had uh, COVID-19 in it. I guess it's the first animal uh, in New Brunswick that was confirmed. Um, COVID virus was detected in white-tailed deer in um, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec uh, over the course of the last uh, year and a bit. Um, some of the studies have been done on white-tailed deer, which is which is where they're finding um, the COVID virus uh, has has been in uh, animals, wild animals, is in white-tailed deer. Uh, studies are showing that the virus is likely spreading initially from humans to deer and then deer to deer trans transmission. Um, scientists from Canada have, have been monitoring the spread of COVID in, in wildlife had also earlier, and I covered this in a previous episode, um, discovered an instant in Ontario where they're pretty sure that the, the person contracted COVID, the COVID virus from a deer that was infected. So somehow, whether that was a hunter or what it was, I don't know the full story on that. Somebody was obviously in pretty close contact uh, to a deer. It sounds like, um, you know, the studies that are being done on this is that, you know, the risk of transmission from deer to humans uh, is, is considered by the scientific community and health community to be pretty low. Um, and it's largely a disease that's affecting humans. Um, and everything that I've read and seen on COVID getting into the white-tailed deer so far is it, it doesn't sound like it's fatal, not like CWD uh, to deer. Mostly uh, what I've been reading uh, in the literature is that they're finding that deer have had the COVID virus because they're finding the antibodies to the COVID virus in the deer's blood, meaning that they, they, got, they got the virus, their bodies fought it, coded for an antivirus, and then like they got better and carried on. So um, COVID in white-tailed deer doesn't sound to be nearly as alarming as chronic wasting disease. Um, health officials are still saying like come hunting season, they're recommending you know, that uh, hunters kind of do the, the glove and the mask thing and eye protection when processing a deer. I think part of that's going to come down to, you know, maybe come this fall in kind of understanding where the hot spots are in Canada. Uh, and, and if you're kind of in and around one of those hot spots where they've detected um, deer having contracted um uh, COVID or not, but I don't know how extensive or how wide the testing is across the country. So you're probably best to take some of those precautions uh, this this fall. Uh, kind of switching gears a little bit, there's starting to be some rumblings in the firearms community in Canada. I read an article from Caliber magazine that apparently the federal government is you know, slipped in uh, some sort of clause or condition into some legislation that's that's about to, to come into effect here pretty quick that's going to require the sellers of firearms in Canada to call the, the Firearms Centre and get an authorization number in order to complete the transaction, the selling of a firearm. 
of which part of the requirement is going to be that the seller has to get some information on who the buyer is. And then that information would, quote unquote, get registered uh, and there will be a database. So, so the article I read in Caliber Magazine was kind of saying that this is going back to the National Gun Registry um, that was abolished a number of years ago. So there doesn't seem to be a lot in the media being said about this right now, other than the one article I found, like I said, in Caliber Magazine. You can look it up for yourself and kind of see what uh, what folks are saying about this. But it's um, uh, definitely raising uh, the eyebrows of um, the firearm community in Canada. So I'll keep you up to date if I learn more about uh, changes to federal legislation that's going to require some authorization and registration of firearms being bought and sold in the country. So pretty much the trapping season in Canada is, has uh, wrapped up for, for the winter in most parts of the country. So it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I've been following this just as I'm getting into trapping here the last couple years. Uh, sort of like what's going on with the global fur markets. Uh, I've done a few podcasts with um, with uh, Alberta and BC Trappers Associations, learning a little bit more about the industry and the people who, who rely on this in a livelihood. So, so COVID had a big impact on the global fur industry in that Canada is like the go-to place for a lot of the fur sales. And the way those fur sales um, took place, the big auctions, uh, in Eastern Canada is, is buyers from all over the world would come in and they would have graders and inspectors that would go over the fur, the different lots, and then they would bid on them in auctions. Prices were, um, were usually pretty good in the auctions, uh, not as good as they were historically, but COVID kind of put a stop to all of that global travel. So for the last couple of years the sales have been done online and uh, prices have have not been as good just because you know I can understand buyers are not there to um, you know have the inspectors and testers and fur graders and stuff look at what they're actually actually buying so Canada is apparently the world's largest um, producer of wildlife skins uh, at over 400,000 um, pieces of fur every year uh, it's worth worth about 14 million dollars uh, in 2019 and 2020. So unfortunately fur sales are continue to be impacted prices uh, because a lot of the big luxury clothing brands um, are backing out of uh, fur uh, on real fur on their products and the big one which I talked about kind of the end of last year, beginning of this year, was the uh, Canadian clothing company Canada Goose that made a big announcement that it was going to phase out the use of uh, coyote and wolf trim on its big parkas. That was a huge consumer of Canadian furs, uh, especially um, coyotes. So that's still being identified as a major hit to global uh, fur prices. Recently, in the Northwest Territories, the uh, territorial government announced that it's going to pay uh, hunters and trappers a base price for harvesting beaver casters. So beavers have small wheels on them like a piano. No, they're 
if you don't know, uh, beavers have a scent sac inside their groin area, which is contains uh, a product which is worth a lot of money and it's used mostly in the cosmetic industries. Years ago, it was used to like flavor things like ice cream and candy and that sort of stuff. As far as I know now, it's primarily a cosmetic um, uh, additive and it's, I guess, can't be synthesized. So with beaver prices being so low, most trappers will tell you there's no sense in even trapping beavers because the amount of time and effort, uh, and they are, a, beavers are a lot of work, um, that they're just not getting, uh, you know, enough for them, 25, 50 bucks or whatever, when, you know, really a trapper would need to get like two, $300. So, so the casters are still something that uh, a trapper can get from uh, a beaver and the Northwest Territories government decided to um, set uh, like a base price of $65 per pound of dried caster that they will pay um, to hunters and trappers in the Northwest Territories because of the importance of trapping to um, the livelihood and employment in the Northwest Territories. The, the government said we'll pay a base price and then the hunters will get paid more uh, if the casters sell for a higher price in the auctions, but they're guaranteeing a base price of $65 a pound. So that would take about eight, eight casters, eight beavers to make uh, a pound of dried, dried casters. So interestingly enough, one of the big impacts that may unfold this year in the auctions is the war in the Ukraine. Um, these are two substantially large markets, consumers of wild furs, of Canadian wild furs that are essentially because of the sanctions and because of the country, the Ukraine being invaded and at war, that they most likely will not be in the fur trade, um, in the sales here this, this summer, um, Ukraine and Russia are identified as the sec outside of a the Asian uh, market is the second most important consumer of wild furs for Canadian, uh, the Canadian fur industry. So, so that's kind of interesting. Um, the big f uh, fur harvesters auction, uh, the second one for the year is coming up in June of this year, uh, June 23rd through the 27th. So uh, I'll be, I've got some furs in that market first time ever some squirrels so i'll see how how that goes and maybe report back to you in a future episode kind of what's happening with the fur market and the impact of of the war in the ukraine so in the last episode i was talking about a uh, a big shakeup in the fishing industry in uh, the Atlantic provinces of Canada, where the Department of Fisheries and Oceans announced a big closure on the mackerel uh, fisheries because of the um, the depleted or, or declining stocks. Um, so a listener to the show uh, is it lives in Nova Scotia and wrote me in, and this is just amazing um, that you know we're, that I'm reaching people from all parts of the country that you know are, are living with some of these stories that I'm covering, and um, this person just wanted to point it point out uh, two things: the commercial closure on mackerel that DFO announced here early this spring applies to mackerel fisheries across all of Eastern Canada, and it doesn't apply. The closures didn't apply to recreational 
angling for um, for mackerel. Last year, and I covered this story uh, last year in an episode, DFO brought in changes to the recreational mackerel fisheries. And they put a size, increased the size restriction in order to keep a, a mackerel. I went up to, if I have this right, 26.8 centimeters. And there was a, um, uh, a limit put on a daily catch limit of 20 mackerel per person for recreational fisheries. The way it used to be before is there, what the accusation was is that the commercial fishing industry and vessels were using the recreational fishery season and they were taking up to some of the numbers I've seen upwards of 500 kilograms per day as a recreational sport fishing mackerel catch and putting that into the commercial catch uh, and, it, and it wasn't really getting captured properly so DFO wanted to kind of close that loophole and they they put a 20 mackerel per person limit last year and uh, up the size limit a little bit so um, that's a little little update on the mackerel fishing story that I covered last time now since I did that story in the last episode DFO has now also announced and I don't know if the decision has been made but they're looking at making a cut to the herring fishery in eastern Canada, uh, particularly in southwestern Nova Scotia, I believe this is where this applies, to potentially up to a 63% cut in the quota for herring. I talked in the previous episode about the, uh, the herring season on the west coast and how it was like a fraction of the quota that was set by DO, DFO, which was actually caught by the commercial uh, herring industry, which was raising all kinds of alarm bells about the sustainability of the commercial fishery and, and depleted stock. So um, looks like DFO has the same um, potential concerns about the herring uh, populations in the Atlantic provinces. So looking for some big, big cuts coming there. So Quebec has been one of the places where there's been a bunch of controversy this winter over its endangered caribou uh, and accusations that the government's not doing enough to protect, um, you know, same story, uh, saying they want to protect the caribou, that they're a priority, but continuing to log and develop in the boreal forest and the caribou uh, habitat. Uh, that sort of story, there was uh, a bunch of initiatives in Quebec to capture um, portions or the entire remaining populations of some of these uh, endangered herds and put them into maternal pens, uh, take them from the wild and put them, put them into captivity, which raised a lot of uh, conservationist criticism because they basically said like the government's still not doing anything to protect or restore the habitat. They're just taking the remaining caribou off the landscape you know, so to speak. So a uh, story just came out here recently this spring where um, the federal environment minister, uh, Stephen Gilbets, uh, basically placed an ultimatum on the Quebec government um, that it's losing patience with the province, that they aren't upholding their responsibility to protect um, the, the caribou. So under the Federal Species at Risk 
act, the federal government can step into the province's affairs in managing natural resources and wildlife when there's a federally enlisted endangered species and implement the federal act and basically kick industry out of large areas of the landscape and impose habitat protection provisions for an endangered species. Uh, so that's kind of the threat, the threat here uh, that the uh, federal minister of environment is, is placing on the Quebec government to start doing more to, to protect its dwindling caribou herds. Now, this uh, this person with the David Suzuki Foundation here in British Columbia, uh, Rachel uh, Plotkin, is supposed to be a caribou expert, from what I understand. Uh, I was quoted in uh, in, in uh, uh, the media recently about uh, this, the federal government's announcement. Um, sort of said that um, the threat to unilaterally create protected habitat in Quebec for declining herds is a quote-unquote shot across the bow that shows Ottawa is ready to get tough after years of playing nice. So I, I don't necessarily agree with this, that this is a sign that our federal government is going to get tough on endangered species in the provinces. This has been going on, you know, at least in the West here for years, decades of various species of wildlife from, let's just say here in British Columbia, um, the southern caribou populations, the, um, the orcas off the coast of Vancouver, the Chilcotin and Thompson River uh, steelhead runs, the uh, interior Fraser steelhead populations, uh, the Chilco and Thompson populations that have been identified as being at, at critically low levels for a number of years now, like down to like dozens of fish left. And the federal government of Canada has yet to step in, and there's some salmon populations as well on the Fraser. Uh, the federal government has yet to step in after years and years and years and years of this being raised to their attention and doing anything under the species at risk legislation to protect those declining species. So I don't really buy into the idea that Ottawa is now getting tough and they're firing a shot across the bow saying it's ready to get serious. Um, I don't think they've ever been serious, our federal government, or they ever will be about protecting endangered species in this country. A couple of years ago, I think it was just before COVID, that Canada's committee, COSIWIC, that are, that's a committee of independent scientists that assess the status of wildlife populations in the country and make recommendations to the federal government on their status as endangered species, had an emergency session to assess the data on the interior, interior Fraser steelhead runs and made recommendations to the federal minister of environment at the time, which uh, was Catherine McKechna, and said these species of steelhead need to be listed now under the federal, they need federal protection. As I understood it, that 
the Federal Species at Risk Act would require the federal minister to make a decision on COSIWIC's recommendations within 90 days of receiving a recommendation on the status of endangered wildlife in the country. That decision went unmade for over a year. Um, during that time, the Federal Minister of Environment was actively out there promoting things like uh, banning straws, plastic straws, this sort of thing. Meanwhile, uh, the interior Fraser Steelhead were being caught in commercial fishing uh, nets and they continued to decline. So that incident of the federal government and then, and then a year later the federal minister came out and said no we don't need to um, provide protection for um, the thompson and chilcote and steelhead populations there was a big controversy surrounding the scientific document that was used to brief the federal government on the status of those two steelhead populations uh, a whole bunch of work that was done here in British Columbia by the BC Wildlife Federation through years and years of um, playing cat and mouse in the um, freedom of information uh, arena, trying to get their hands on that scientific, scientific document and a number of correspondence uh, that went between the provincial and federal government about that decision basically uncovered that um, DFO had actually doctored um, up the scientific report that was supposed to brief the federal minister of environment about listing the interior Fraser steelhead as endangered. And that controversy is still sitting out there right now, unchallenged uh, and unaddressed. So anyways, this whole story about Ottawa and the federal minister of environment saber rattling on the province of Quebec that it better start doing something to protect its caribou or it's going to implement provisions of SARA and shut down large areas of probably like logging and development and stuff in caribou habitat. Unfortunately, I just don't see it happening because the federal government's track record on this stuff is pretty dismal. I believe we're at a point in this country when it comes to endangered species that we can't wait anymore. I actually think we should probably just abolish the federal species at risk legislation because it is not working. It is supposed to be a safety net that works below the provincial species at risk legislations. It's obviously not working. British Columbia does not even have its own provincial species at risk legislation. They just ad hoc deal with endangered species uh, issues as they come up. And the federal government has yet to step in and use any of the powers and teeth of the federal legislation to protect wildlife in British Columbia or Alberta. So anyways, that's my rant about the federal minister's announcement to uh, threaten the Quebec government to do a better job. So springtime and Vancouver and the lower mainland of British Columbia we're back on to the story of goose poop and coyotes in Stanley Park. So yeah, um, the, all the stories and complaints are starting to pop up as the geese are arriving back in Vancouver and Stanley Park. Coyotes are starting to den and they're going to have their pups uh, pretty quick. So 
parts of Stanley Park have been cordoned off um, for the denning season and and natal prenatal periods of of the coyotes that are still living in Stanley Park uh, supposedly trying to keep people out I don't know if that's going to work because it didn't last year when they had all the uh, coyote biting people problems in Stanley Park so lots of stuff in the media about um, goose pooping uh, in Vancouver and how terrible it is and they poop on the sidewalks in the beaches and on memorial benches and uh, they have they can poop up to so many kilograms a day and you know and all this kind of stuff and you know they're talking about they want the public to report geese nests uh, because they're doing these things where they're going and taking the eggs there was the program last year where they called, it's called addling, where they, they go in and they shake the shit out of the eggs and then put them back in the nest and the geese think that they're, they're still raising their brood and then the eggs just never hatch and the, and the mating pair just kind of goes about, about their day in the summertime. Uh, there's also a method of uh, coating the geese eggs in oil so it suffocates uh, the embryo inside because the oil clogs up the pores, prevents oxygen exchange to the embryo. And now what they're doing is they're asking the public to report geese nests so that they can swap out eggs that are in the nest with the ones that have been frozen as a way to try to control the goose population. So, you know, this, this whole story is not going to go away. There's, you know, there's geese problems in the Okanagan, um, up into Vernon and, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Their populations are starting to rebound from from uh, big declines at the turn of the century. They like parks, they like lawns, they like golf courses, and they're exploiting all the available habitat, same as the coyotes are in urban areas. But I'm, I, I keep following this story and I'm like, what's the big picture here? And to me, the big picture comes back to whether it's geese, coyotes, urban deer, squirrels, raccoons, grizzly bears and fernie, black bears and revelstoke, whatever it is. It's this notion of wildlife living in human habitat. And so there's been a big movement coined under the title or uh, under the auspices of compassionate conservation of learning to coexist with wildlife. People need to learn to coexist with wildlife. And I have nothing against that concept because that's what conservationists have been trying to do for ever is to find ways that humans and wildlife can coexist on the landscape with one, you know, unduly impacting the other, mostly without humans wiping out uh, wildlife. But what that, there's such a level of empathy and animal rights philosophies embedded into this idea of coexisting with wildlife that it's come right down to the fact that people are trying to coexist with these animals right in our communities trying to figure out ways that grizzly bears can roam around in the neighborhood at nighttime and deer can you know live with birth control and and you know not have to be removed and you know these sorts of things there's there's calls down in the lower mainland of denaturalizing the landscape to make it less favorable for geese so what it boils down to me is 
Wildlife and people should not be living together, really, in our communities. We need to draw circles around certain areas and say this is human habitat, meaning our developed, core developed urban areas, communities. And I do honestly think we have to have programs that remove or exclude as many species of wildlife as possible from where people are living. Yes, we can coexist and we should coexist and have tolerance and empathy for wildlife within the broader context of what is good wildlife habitat, good natural wildlife habitat out there in the rural and wilderness areas, if you want to put it uh, in those terms. But in our highly developed urban areas, to me, this is just not a place we should try to exercise that philosophy of animals wild animals and people living together because at the end of the day wildlife is the one that suffers they suffer by the fact that they have to get removed they're diseased they're eating garbage they're getting run over um deer and kimberly and cranbrook where i live with broken legs and stuff by getting hit by cars you know their concerns about chronic wasting disease getting into um, the deer populations in urban environment which is one of the hypothesis in uh, Helena Montana where uh, deer were discovered to have chronic wasting disease about 60 kilometers from the BC border a number of years ago one of the theories is is that the bones of a chronic wasting disease infected deer was brought into the community and it was came in contact with urban deer rummaging through garbage cans like it's just i don't know it's just to me it's just not a good thing uh humans need to have habitat and for the most part we should probably act like other wildlife and do as much as possible to kind of exclude uh, or make the habitat unfavorable uh, rather than this philosophy of trying to live with the wildlife it's kind of interesting in the story in Vancouver. It's like people want to coexist with the coyotes, live friendly with the coyotes, um, but it's like they want to get rid of the geese. It's like they're actively out there killing geese nests. Um, they won't, advocates won't go as far as actually culling the geese, um, you know, through an authorized hunt or a professional culling or something like that because. Even that's controversial. They tried setting that up in Vernon, about a hundred and something geese last year, and there was a petition to stop the culling of the geese there. So yeah, just following the goose and the coyote story down in the Vancouver area in the lower mainland just really made me think about the bigger picture of where should wildlife be living and where should we actually exclude them? How do we exclude them? Probably one of the best ways to exclude most wildlife, larger wildlife, is from fencing our communities. So how are you going to fence Vancouver? Be a big fence. Uh, can't keep out geese. Uh, they're going to fly over top of the fences. Uh, that's for sure. I don't know what the solution is. I think for a lot of smaller communities that have bear problems like Fernie and Revelstoke, yeah, you know what? Communities that have problems with urban deer, fencing our communities like they did to the town of Banff uh, might have to be an option that starts to get explored sooner or later because wildlife are getting 
the blunt end of the stick when it comes to this whole idea of trying to coexist and cohabitate with wildlife in human habitat. So woods bison in Alberta. So Elk Island National Park is one of the one of the refuges for uh, the endangered wood bison. They range over into uh, northeastern British Columbia in the Alberta Plateau region, north of Fort Nelson in the Liard uh, River area. I've seen them up there. But the biggest population of the endangered wood bison was in Elk Island National Park. If you're not familiar with about the whole history of, of, uh, of bison in Elk Island National Park, uh, Canada has quite a convoluted history um, to this herd. And the plains bison herds that were in reserves in southern Alberta and the southern prairies, there was a big controversy, I think, back in the early 1900s where the federal government moved a bunch of the plains bison up to Elk Island National Park with the woods bison. And conservation and scientists and biologists at the time were saying that's going to cause um, inbreeding and will actually genetically cause the wood bison to go extinct. It, it's, it's quite a convoluted history. Well, Canada's history with the wood bison continues, and recently they decided to move, the government decided to move about 40 wood bison from Elk Island National Park into Alaska, um, basically to try to preserve uh, the species in the face of climate change. They're moving them farther north to stay in colder climates for as long as possible where they're more adapted to the cooler boreal climates um, to try to preserve uh, the wood bison into the future. So um, continuing saga of the wood bison story that started a couple hundred years ago in, in Canada and they've now been moved into Alaska. Uh, if you do any reading in the history books and stuff, there was a big controversy about one of the last Plains bison's herds being bought and moved out of Montana uh, into Canada and sort of a big, uh, almost like a Hollywood movie and a big race by U.S. legislators to try to actually literally stop the train from leaving the United States and reaching Canada with the last free roaming plains bison herds um, that were bought and moved into Canada. These, uh, as I remember, were some of the animals that eventually ended up getting relocated from southern the southern prairies of Canada into uh, the habitat of the wood bison in uh, Elk Island National Park. So convoluted story of bison coming from America to Canada and now from Canada back to America with a progressive movement northward. Speaking of bison, so in 2017, uh, Parks Canada introduced a um, dozen to 16, 16 bison into a uh, northeast part of the, the park, I think in the Panther River area. They had a big uh, enclosure built and it was a five-year pilot project to rear bison uh, in Banff National Park, allow the herds to grow, which are now over 60 animals. And I think they've been turned loose and they're now roaming about 1,200 square kilometers of Banff National Park's backcountry. So recently, the Stony Nakoda Nation in Alberta um, decided to do a cultural assessment 
on the impact of reintroducing bison back into their traditional lands that we now know as Banff, uh, and the impact that that has on the um, Stony Nakoda Nation people. So they produced a cultural assessment report that had 11 recommendations that was then sent to uh, Parks Canada. And part of those recommendations included um, continuing to involve um, the Stony Nakoda Nation in the park's management uh, and monitoring of the bison herd in their traditional lands in Banff National Park. And they also recommended to the provincial government that as the bison herds expand into other parts of the national park, that when the herds grow too large for the carrying capacity of the habitat in Banff National Park, that the First Nations be allowed to come in and harvest animals. So because that was part of their cultural assessment, and as I understand it, the objectives or the values of the Stony Nakoda Nation people is the hunting and harvesting of bison in that traditional area of their territory is important to them. And when the bison in the national park reach a level that like they do down in Yellowstone, where they have to remove animals to maintain balance with the habitat that they're allowed to go in and uh, I guess reinstitute a hunt that it probably had stopped uh, maybe over a hundred years ago. So it'll be interesting when we reach the day of Parks Canada having to make a decision about an Indigenous bison hunt in Banff National Park. As I recall, there was a small hunt of a couple of elders in Kootenai National Park about four or five years ago, uh, kind of a similar thing of um, reconciliation and, and uh and the loss of hunting, traditional hunting lands in the national park. So that'll be interesting to see where this one leads Parks Canada and how the public accepts a hunt of bison in Banff National Park. So last year I talked about a story uh, in British Columbia about the government bringing in a moratorium on the sale of rodenticides, the poisons that you could buy from your home and garden center, the rat poisons and mouse poisons and stuff. Um, there was a moratorium on the sale of that stuff um, last year. It was an 18 month ban. I think the sale ban is still currently on right now. Basically, they started finding a number of um, birds of prey, owls down in the lower mainland area that were um, determined uh, the cause of death was from poisoning from uh, rodent rodenticides. So the government put a moratorium on the sale of this stuff and they wanted to move forward to do a more comprehensive environmental review. So shortly after that um, temporary ban was introduced, uh, some industry um, parts of um, sort of the... Uh, um, the not the consumer but the uh, the producer side of um, industry home and garden shops feed shops those those sorts of um, representation uh, in in the business community came forward and said this is not a good idea to have an outright ban on this stuff because 
of the impact that rodents have getting into the inventory, especially in farm and garden and feed supply businesses. So one business that it estimated that it lost uh, $200,000 worth of inventory um, because of a um, mouse infestation in its facility that included having to rip out uh, walls and uh, deal with mice that cost an additional $300,000 uh, in, in renos and tearing stuff apart and getting rid of mice. So substantial uh, losses to this was just one business half a million dollars uh, lost because of because of mice and basically uh, the business owners were saying at the rate that mice breed in these feed uh, storage facilities that simply trapping them cannot keep up with the rate of population increase which is why they need to have um, uh, poisons in order to deal with the scale of infestation so can understand it from their perspective I guess personally where I have a problem is is when this stuff gets into the hands of the untrained uncertified um, residential homeowner which when it comes to anything like fungicides fertilizers uh, any types of pesticides uh, it's kind of like the more the merrier the more you know if a little bit's good more has got to be better I think I remember reading a report years and years and years ago about domestic use of herbicides. So the average homeowner that's spraying uh, herbicides on their lawn and garden and uh, driveways and sidewalks and that kind of stuff were over applying the chemicals from the manufacturer's requirements by like 70% spraying 70% more than what the manufacturers required. So you can probably gather that when it comes to the use of rodenticides that, um, you know, maybe a similar thing's happening. It's being put in places where it's allowing mice and rodents and rats and stuff to feed on it to die, but then those, those corpses are then getting picked up by um, owls and hawks and other birds and that sort of stuff, which is then ingesting them, bioaccumulating and, and killing um, the, the other species of wildlife. So don't know for sure, but maybe there can be some sort of uh, provisions in the upcoming provincial legislation that may end up having to deal with uh, rodenticides that, you know, it might be commercially available through trained and certified uh, individuals like some of the pesticides are you can't get access to them as a as a non-licensed homeowner but if you're a licensed pesticide applicator you can maybe there's going to be something along that lines to use the rodenticides in commercial business applications but for the average uh, homeowner you're going to have to either hire a um, pest control agency or you're going to have to learn how to become a good proficient trapper Anyways, if you're interested in providing comments, the province of British Columbia is accepting public feedback on its um, potential policy around the sale of rodenticides in the province until June 19th. If you go digging around on the government of BC website, you'll probably uh, just search for public feedback rodenticides and you'll probably find the part of the BC government website where you can provide input. Uh, maybe I'll stick a link in the show notes. So from mice to moose, uh, skipping over to Newfoundland. Um, so Newfoundland has been starting to process its online moose applications and big game hunting licenses for the upcoming year. 
Newfoundland government's been processing about 2,000 applications a day here in the early part of the strengths, uh, spring for uh, big game hunting licenses. Around the beginning of this month, uh, the government had reported that about 77% of all the registered uh, hunters in the province had been through the system, but that they're getting numerous complaints about the online system being slow, bogging down, not working, being glitches. People can't get through to buy their hunting licenses, apply for their permits for the year. Interesting. So just a little under 30% of the population is struggling with the online system from what I gather from that. So the Newfoundland government, the minister came out and said that based on the government's investigation, the leading cause of hunters having issues with the online system, which has been used for a couple of years now, is either forgetting their email or their password. So I feel for those folks because if I had to hypothesize, I would say that the remaining 23% of the hunting community in Newfoundland that's struggling with the online system is probably the older age class of hunters in the province. Maybe not, um, but that the leading cause of them not being able to process their big game hunting licenses is forgetting their email or password. Kind of can't kind of sounds consistent with uh you know grandpa trying to use the computer and not knowing his password i mean god i, I don't want to make fun of people i'm only 55 and i struggle with passwords constantly uh forgetting them writing them down re-entering them to find out that i had written them down wrong uh, so I'm there. Uh, I'm probably in that 23% now that is probably complaining that the process is not working because I can't get in because I can't remember my password. There's a facility on Vancouver Island uh, called Wild Ark uh, Animal Rehabilitation Center. I think uh, it's just outside of Victoria or near the uh, near Victoria. So they had be recently been reporting that they've been receiving an abnormally high number of squirrels into the rehabilitation center for the same time period in the springtime what they're normally used to getting in. So around the end of last month, March, beginning of April, uh, they had around 19 squirrels in the facility that were being taken care of, including three eastern gray squirrels that had broken legs. It's about, the, the, the facility reported it was about $1,700 to fully rehabilitate these three squirrels with the broken legs. I think they're referring to the three squirrels, not all 19 squirrels. So they were asking for, for donations. So when originally when I saw this, I was like, you know, I'm always an advocate of, you know, if there's money out there to be put into wildlife, uh, it should be prioritized and put into wildlife and wildlife habitat projects that are most in need. Um, this is a private facility. They can do whatever they want. Obviously, with the money that they raise, they have permits from the government to bring in wild animals. 
Eastern gray squirrels on Vancouver Island are a non-native species. They're introduced from Eastern Canada and they're considered invasive or, or introduced. So they cause a lot of headaches to homeowners in, in uh, uh, the developed areas and around homes. They're supposed to be uh, quite competitive to the natural uh, red and Douglas squirrels down on the lower mainland area of British Columbia. And so what's happening is these trees are, or these squirrels are falling out of trees. They're falling out of their nest, breaking their leg. People are finding them and bringing them into the rehab facilities. So sometimes that the facility said that happens in windstorms, but the majority of the cases are trees being cut down. They got squirrels nests in them. So they try to get the squirrels back into the nest, but the mothers have either left or they've been killed uh, when the trees felled. And so they end up with these uh, abandoned injured squirrels to take care of. So, so m my initial reaction is like, kind of what the heck I'm going to spend 1700 bucks to rehabilitate baby squirrels of an introduced species invasive species when there's all these other issues going on with native wildlife and habitat um, that that money could be put to use you know to donated to land conservancy or rehabilitation of caribou habitat or something you know then then I kind of had to like kind of like take a step back and uh you know kind of assess my take on this situation so i get it i i get people's empathy for animals that have been injured abandoned lost whatever in nature and helping them out i've done it myself my whole entire life since i was a kid uh, helping everything from bugs to small birds that have hit windows, you know, those sorts of things. I think we've all done that. And I've continued to do that well into my adult life. Birds that have bonked into the windows that are a little bit stunned. I've wrapped them up. I put them in a sheltered area. Um, hopefully they're not suffering, um, you know, severe concussions uh, and, and they end up dying. Uh, but most of them seem to recover from the bang on the window. They fly off, but I kind of like, you know, give them a safe little place to, to rest until they recover. Uh, I had incidents at my new house here with the bluebirds try to nest in my fireplace and they get stuck in the chimney and they end up down in the bottom of the, um, where you load the firewood in the front you got to open up the door and catch a bird and let them outside. A number of years ago, I was probably in my mid forties. I was out camping and, um, somebody had gone and put, uh, sprinkled a whole bunch of the powdered lye into the outhouse. And I think one of my kids noticed that there had been a mouse down there. They got coated in lye. Lye is extremely caustic. Um, it's really bad shit if you get it on your skin. And here's this poor little mouse down there. This, this, covered white and so yep we went down scooped them out of the outhouse took them back into camp washed it off with a saline solution washed his poor little eyes out um fluffed him up uh you know by the by the heater cleaned his eyes rinsed him out with sterile saline uh hopefully the caustic uh lie didn't you know damage its eyes got them all fluffy and warm and took them out into the woods and built a little uh, moss nest and some handful of sunflower seeds and put it in there to, to, to recover. You know, I've done all types of things throughout, throughout my life. And so I get it. Um, people have empathy for wildlife. 
even if it is an eastern gray squirrel that's an introduced species, it's still a living animal. Um, it's an infant. And geez, I got pictures of these little squirrels with little casts on their legs all curled up sleeping and stuff. And so I get it. Um, you know, one of the other lenses I put on this to kind of kind of temper my thoughts towards these little gray squirrels was I love wild turkeys. I love the Miriam's wild turkey. I love hunting wild turkeys here in British Columbia. And I stand up for wild turkeys in British Columbia every chance I get. And I stand up against the people that are saying they're non-native wildlife. They shouldn't be here. They're invasive. We should just get rid of them all. Um, I'm like, no, they're here. They're integrated into the ecosystem. They're not harming any of the native uh, gross populations. They're great to hunt. They're tasty. Uh, we should manage them. We should manage them sustainably. And we should, you know, we should, should look after them as a wildlife species in the province. So same situation. They don't belong. They, they're not native to BC. I'm not going to say they don't belong here. They're not native. The same as the gray squirrels. So I would probably put a cast on a Miriam's wild turkey if it had a broken leg. So I don't have a problem with people putting casts on eastern gray squirrels and raising 1700 bucks to rehabilitate them. So at the end of the day, I had an initial reaction to this story. I had to kind of look at my own views, appreciate that people have empathy for wildlife, which I think is a good thing. Uh, if I wanted to go hunt eastern gray squirrels on Vancouver Island to cook them up and eat them, that's fine too. So hopefully those same people wouldn't have so much empathy that they would tell me I can't hunt them, which you can because there's no close season on them. So at the end of the day, I am okay with squirrels in rehab. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode.